down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you better go in disguise. For every bear that ever there was, we'll gather there for certain because today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. <laughs> Hey, hey, everybody, it is once again that time, oh yes, that time is for the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean, except no substitute, um, mainly because I'm the only host, I don't have a uh, Rolodex full of uh, backups I can call in case I get sick or something, uh, but do people still use Rolodexes, Rolodeses, I, I don't know, but um, hey, um, how are things going? Well, Oh, as if I can hear you. Well, you can always send me a feedback, but uh, before I get into any details or anything, there was a glaring omission from the previous episode about uh, Mooncresta, and that's how I like to acknowledge high scores. I couldn't really find many for the games that I covered in previous episodes and a couple of previous episodes, but for Mooncresta, there were. Part of it is because Mooncresta was featured in the Atari Age High Score Club at least three times, so I kind of use that as a basis. I have three different scores, one for easy, one for medium, one for hard. The highest score I could find for easy setting on Mooncresta is Wilson Oyama, surprise, surprise, through emulation. In fact, I think all these are through emulation. But uh, Wilson scored 158,230 on July 27th, 2014. Well, at least that's when he submitted the score. And for normal difficulty, the record score that I was able to find was 29,120. Not even enough to get a bonus life. And that's the highest I could find. And uh, that was set by Atari Age user uh, Lid Likes in Television, formerly Lidwario. And uh, that was April 14th, 2012. And the highest score I could find for hard difficulty was, again, by Lid Likes in Television, formerly Lidwario. And his score on difficult mode was 11,020, which he submitted on July 20th, 2014. So, wow, that is a difficult, difficult game, as you undoubtedly remember hearing if you're a regular listener of this show. So now that I got that all caught up, I should just get into uh, what I wanted to talk about now, which was, well, just the usual preamble stuff. Um, how am I doing? I guess, eh, well, that's a loaded question. My wife and I went to a place called Replay, which is in our neighborhood. It is mostly a beercade, but they actually do have a full menu. So we had lunch there, and my wife is not a gamer at all, but she knew that I would have to uh, satisfy my need to play some video games. I didn't want to keep her waiting too long, so I just played a few games. I played Joust and Donkey Kong and Centipede. And my wife, whenever she's with me, if I happen to sneak away to play a um, an arcade video game, she usually gravitates towards Centipede, and that was no different. Uh, the games at this place were on free play, so it didn't cost anything to play the games. They want you more for the beer and the food actually. So I did a little bit of that and, uh, I tried to mod a Sears light six or 2600, the, uh, 
the Telegames video arcade with the little silver strip on the uh, control panel. I love those things. Those, those things look great. I, it's a mod that I've done many times, but this time it didn't go right. I finished it up. I double-checked. Everything's connected where it should be according to the instructions. When I fire the thing up with a cartridge inside, I just get two buzzes and nothing else. And if there's no cartridge inside, I get nothing. I don't get any video or anything with or without a cartridge. So I thought I might have damaged the thing, but I looked online. I wanted to figure out what the problem was. I didn't get much response when I posted on various internet fora asking for help, but I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I looked online and found another guide it wasn't the exact same mod, but it still had the same components. It still had similar components, and the installation instructions were pretty much the same. And I looked at the diagrams and installation instructions, and they were pretty much the same as what I had done to my Sears Light Sixer. So I took another look, and it looked like this set of instructions actually had the audio in and video in reversed. So I went back, I desoldered the wires that I thought were reversed, switched them around, resoldered, and boom, fired up nicely. Perfect picture and everything. I was like, yes! So, hey, that's uh, that's my life. Other than that, I haven't really done a heck of a lot of gaming other than playing Crystal Quest. I tried to, uh, I tried to get through the entire game. I ended up not doing it simply because I ran out of time, my, my, meaning I ran out of time myself. Didn't have enough time to sit and play for as long as I wanted to. But hey, what are you going to do? Uh, also, I have to warn you, some of this podcast, it might sound a little bit weird. Uh, previous episode, I mentioned that I was trying a different setting on uh, GarageBand called Mail Radio, and uh, I didn't like it. It was too sibilant, so I switched back to Mail Narrator. But the other thing is, I don't know what happened to me. Well, I think I know what happened to me. Uh, on Halloween, I ride my bike to work as much as possible. On my bike, it's a nine-mile trip uh it's not that long if i take say public transit it's more like six or seven miles that way but because of the bike trail that i take uh it kind of takes me a little bit further east like right along lake michigan and then back into downtown so that, that adds a little bit of distance but it's actually a quick way to get to work on a bike and i usually have a backpack on me at the time my backpack usually contains my personal laptop, which is a MacBook Pro, and it's very thin, very light, and my work laptop. Where, where I work, I'm a web developer for a living, and um, we do all of our work on laptops, and they make us take our laptops home with us just in case there's an emergency that needs to be fixed right away, and that way we have all our source code and everything, we can do the fix, and thankfully that happens extremely rarely. So I have those two laptops in my backpack, and it's no problem. But um, on Halloween, I had my backpack jammed. Like I had a change of clothes because I build up a lot of sweat. Uh, I always have a change of clothes, too. And I also had a very heavy Pyrex container full of uh, Bailey's Irish cream fudge that I made for our little Halloween potluck. And that put on a ton of weight, and I didn't think anything of it. Except uh, I noticed that for the next couple of nights, my neck was a little bit sore. Uh, it, it, basically, if you ever sleep wrong, as some people say, you wake up feeling sore. That was the feeling that I got. So a couple of days go by, and it's like, yeah, whatever. So 
Um, I didn't ride my bike to work for those couple of days because, well, it was just too rainy and windy. So basically I, I don't want to ride my bike in the rain for various reasons. Uh, a little bit of rain, a little sprinkle is fine, but if it's a huge downpour, forget it. That Friday, the weather was really, really nice. So I decided, you know what, I'll take my bike and, uh, had my backpack on and everything. And I was a little bit sore still, but I didn't think much of it. But I noticed that when I extended my arms out, I was a little bit more sore, but I was like, you know what? I can deal with this. And, um, when I got to work and I got off my bike, suddenly I felt just this incredible surge of pain in my upper back and actually traveling down my arms. And I was like, Oh my God, what's going on? And for the entire day, I couldn't stop fidgeting. I was in so much pain. And, uh, the next day I went to the, uh, immediate care place and, uh, I was in and out in like five minutes. They're like, Oh, you, you feel pain there and there here, here are some drugs. Oh, great. Thanks. So you didn't examine me or anything. And, um, I'm recording this intro, uh, nine days later, I still have a tiny bit of pain, but it's manageable, but I did record some of this podcast during some of the worst pain that I had. And, uh, the way I usually record is I have a microphone on my desk and I just kind of lean forward a little bit with my back straight up. Uh, I couldn't do it so well this time. So I actually just sat back in my chair and held my microphone in my hand. And this is a blue Yeti microphone. If you're not familiar with those things, they're really good microphones, but uh, they're big and kind of clunky to hold in your hand. And they're also very, very sensitive. Like you'll hear this, like you'll hear kind of a like vibration when I, and the thing is, I'm not even tapping the microphone at all, but it's, but the vibration from something else will be picked up by the microphone stand. It'll go up the microphone and it'll be heard a lot. So in some of this podcast, you might hear a lot of that kind of thing going on. So I apologize at the time of this recording though. Uh, this is one of the last segments I'm recording. Um, I'm actually much better. I'm not going to take my bike to work though, because well, uh, I still feel a little bit of problem in my right arm and my back isn't totally back into shape, but it should be in a couple of days. So I'm very thankful for that. Uh, you have no idea how thankful you are for not having pain when you've had pain for a while. <laughs> but uh, so, hey, that's been the past week or two for me. Anyway, I'm just going to shut up right now about anything that's not gaming related on the homebrew front, um, last episode, I had talked about how there was a little bit more discussion about sick pickles, possibly getting a physical cartridge release. And, um, I had mentioned that, uh, I'd like to think that maybe it was this podcast that inspired it because it was right after the sick pickles episode came out. Honestly, I think it was just coincidence, but still I can dream. Can't I last I had talked to you, I said that there was talk about possibly a cartridge release with an option to get just the bare board that you can stick in a shell yourself. And uh, it would make the cartridge really, really, really cheap. And of course there are some people who really like that idea. Well, there's been a little bit more talk about what might happen. Breck Brixius, AKA Silicon Dioxide Natari Age. He posted a mock-up of the sick pickles label. It's got a green background and the font of sick pickles it looks kind of like the font that's used in uh, the Brady Bunch or Gilligan's Island or the Beach Boys legendary smile album. And it's got this uh, kind of 
cartoonish drawing of some kid with a slightly green face and his tongue sticking out. A very creative uh, artwork, I must say. It looks like Breck did some further work on the game itself because he posted a screenshot of a Sick Pickles high score table with initials and everything, so that might be interesting there. And last weekend, from when this episode is being released, Breck had posted that uh, he's thinking there will be a fancy version because the version that he had already posted for download was called the less fancy version, which he now considers to be complete. He says for the fancy version, there are going to be some additional features. There'll be some on-cart instructions, basically meaning that uh, the instructions will be in the game itself, kind of like what he did with Alpha Race. And there would be an options menu and save key and Atari Vox score saving capabilities. So uh, if he does a physical release, it'll be the fancy version. And uh, I kind of hope he does because now I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I got a piece of email from Great Offender, who's been a longtime supporter, both uh, monetarily and morally, uh, of this podcast. Uh, so I want to address that. Um, it's about Fat Axel and Sick Pickles, specifically. Uh, he says, Hi, Sean. Another great episode. Four homebrews in one. Can't beat that. Thank you, uh, Great Offender. Very nice of you to say that. I love the back history regarding Sven Gulli. I had never heard of Fat Axel or Sick Pickles. In fact, I thought Fat Axel must be referring to a car part. Anyhow, the real reference and game idea is hilarious, if not just a little sad. They should come out with a new game, maybe Vegan Axel, where he starts out fat while catching all the fruit, vegetables, and soy, and then withers away to nothing, at which point the game ends. LOL. <laughs> Thanks for that thought, Great Offender. Uh, I, I totally hear you there. I mean, I, while I was researching and recording the uh, Fat Axel episode, it, I did have that going on in the back of my mind. It's like, you know what? This, is, this isn't really necessarily something we should necessarily laugh at by default, but uh, I think the defense that I have in this is that, um, like I said before, it's not so much that they're knocking Axel Rose for having put on Wait, it's more like they're knocking on Axl Rose because they have a problem with Axl Rose in general. <laughs> but regarding that vegan Axl, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that would necessarily... Uh, okay, in the video game world, that would be plausible, but not necessarily in real life. Uh, I used to know somebody who was... Well, I don't think she was vegan. She was vegetarian. Uh, not necessarily for religious reasons or for animal cruelty reasons. More like she just literally did not like meat. She couldn't stand the taste of meat. So she was, she adhered to a vegetarian diet. But the thing is, she wasn't exactly skinny. Um, part of the reason for that was she was really just constantly eating. And uh, I, I wouldn't say she was fat either, but she wasn't uh, probably in the healthiest weight she could have been. But yeah, it's... It's your calorie count, not necessarily the type of food. I mean, you could be a vegan all you want, but if you eat, say, 85,000 servings a day, you're not going to be skinny. So I, th I think logistically, I mean, I, I have a, a reputation of being a literalist. <clears throat> Jimmy G. <clears throat> so that, that's my thought about that. But uh, I do like that creativity there. That might be something like have a reverse um, fast food kind of thing going on. So uh, thanks again, Great Offender. I was glad to hear from you. Something else I've been doing, uh, this is actually tangentially related to the Atari 7800. 
I try to recommend um, a podcast with um, every episode. Obviously, I don't do that every time. And actually, I, th- I seem to remember recommending Please Stand By twice. Uh, I-, I had forgotten that I already recommended And well, I guess by this endorsement, that's a third time now. Uh, you're welcome, Kevin and Ferg. But this time, instead of a podcast, I want to recommend a book. And it's called In the St. Nick of Time. Some of you may have heard of it, but it is written by William Pepper, who is also known to many people as Bill from the Atari Bytes podcast, and it's a podcast, Charlie Brown. In fact, the November It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown should be available by the time this episode gets out. It's going to be about uh, a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, and I think an episode of This is America, Charlie Brown, but uh, I don't remember. But anyway, I started reading Bill's book, uh, In the St. Nick of Time, and I gotta say, I... (laughs) I don't really read fiction that much. I might have mentioned that before. I prefer nonfiction, reference-y kind of things. But I decided, you know what? Bill wrote this book. I should really support him with it. And um, I got to say, I'm really, really enjoying it. It's a fascinating story. Uh, It's not meant for kids, despite the title of it. Santa Claus is an important character in the book, but it's more kind of... uh, on the adult end. I don't mean like X-rated or anything. I mean, it's more geared toward adults. Like there's a couple of uh, choice words dropped here and there. And uh, basically the situations in the book, it's something that a lot of kids probably wouldn't understand, but it's a fascinating read and I'm really enjoying it. It's about an author who had uh, several high selling books and he's going through kind of a rough period with a divorce and uh, basically writer's block and some mental issues. And he has a friend who's a conspiracy uh, wacko for lack of a better term. And uh, the way it's divided up is instead of chapters, it goes by December dates. Uh, I think it ends on Christmas, but I'm not sure I'm only about halfway through so far. I'm only up to December 13th. But so far, I'm really, really digging the story. It's very fascinating. And I'm guessing that Bill had to do a lot of research to uh, really get in the minds of what these characters would be like in real life. And it's very well done. And again, a very fascinating story. I strongly recommend it. I'll put a link to uh, that book in the show notes so you can get it on Amazon and uh, possibly other sources, but I don't know. Anyway, this episode's game is crystal quest and uh, on the label and the box it is called crystal quest featuring bentley bear but on the title screen it says bentley bears crystal quest so i'm just gonna call it crystal quest because hey consistency and um anyway let's just get right into it there's some development history a long development history that i have to get into so hey let's talk about how crystal quest came to be Bob DiCrescenzo first announced the project on June 26, 2012, saying with a ROM size of 144 kilobytes, it's his biggest and most ambitious project to date. And he had been working on it on and off since before the previous Christmas. His original plan was to make kind of a Pitfall 3 game, if you will. But the idea evolved into Crystal Quest after he saw Pac-Man Red's graphics in an Atari Age thread about whether the Atari 7800 actually could handle a conversion of the game Wonder Boy. Bob also credits the concept to Atari Age users Spiffy One and Vic Viper, Spiffy One talking about how Bentley Bear could have become a mascot for Atari. 
I do think that there is a consensus that Bentley Barrick would have made the perfect mascot for Atari, but there's a lost opportunity. But anyway, Bob implied that the overall game was the result of brainstorming with uh, another Atari Age user. I don't know if his name is pronounced Jay Weirer or Jay Veerer, but he is known for his homebrew level editors. And also Bob gives some credit to Ken Siders. The ultimate goal was to have Crystal Quest finished in time for Classic Gaming Expo at the Plaza Hotel in Las Vegas the weekend of August 11th that year, and it would be demoed on an Atari 7800 with an XM unit. Now, the story of Crystal Quest is that Berthilda from the original Crystal Castles game, she has stolen five jewels, and Bentley Bear must retrieve them through five levels of eight rounds each, battling Berthilda at the end of each level. And if Bentley beats Berthilda, he gets a jewel back. At this point, the first two levels were complete. There was no sound, but there were plans, obviously, to add sound. There was going to be a splash screen and a track mode and possibly some warp zones. High score cartridge support was considered for saving your progress. And there was also the possibility of a secret level being added. And that original post included NTSC and PAL ROMs, so that anybody in the world could, well, almost anybody in the world could try that game. What followed pretty much were two pages of various Atari Age users seemingly ready to sign away the blood of their firstborn to get the game on cartridge, but Bob said he wasn't nearly ready to start taking names yet. On July 8th, there was a new ROM posted with Level 3 added. And over the next few days, Bob made some tweaks with the game's playability, and on July 12th, he posted a sneak preview screenshot of Level 4. He was also starting to add some music to the game by creatively wiring the MIDI port from his Korg keyboard, and he was trying to capture the MIDI, M-I-D-I, that is, and he planned to write a program that would convert the MIDI data into playable music that could run on the Pokey chip. So the next day, Bob posted a progress report saying that he was focusing on creating the rest of the levels, but he implied that he was going to take Atari Age user Atari Brian's suggestion of flipping the two controller buttons for run slash fire and jump so that they would reflect the gameplay of other two button platform games such as Super Mario Brothers. And Bob did confirm that there will indeed be warps and a secret level. July 14th, there were new ROMs posted, and now the game had a title screen. The right difficulty switch could be used to swap the mapping of the controller buttons, and Bob also tweaked a few color issues. On July 23rd, Bob mentioned that he finished programming level 4 and was halfway through level 5. July 31st, unfortunately, Bob said that he would not be going to Classic Gaming Expo after all, but he gave a progress report. The main levels were done, so that meant that the secret level was the only level left to do. Berthilda now got progressively more aggressive, say that times fast, with each new level, but in previous unfinished versions of the game, her difficulty was the same on every level. Well, every level that had been made so far, I should say. August 2nd, tragedy strikes Bob DiCrescenzo's life as his Cuddle Cart 2 stopped working, which meant that his progress would be hampered. But then came Albert from Atari Age to the rescue, offering his Cuddle Cart 2. And if uh, Albert hadn't done that, then Atari Age user Mayhem would have been the one who offered. And I'm sure other Atari Age folks lucky enough to have a Cuddle Cart 2 would have been happy to help him out. On August 6th, Bob had another progress report. The four warps were finished, as was the entry to the secret level. 
A little problem though. There was no secret level to enter. So he was currently working on it at the time and planned to work on the sound before too long. On August 12th, Bob said that the secret level was there and he said, and I quote, if you can find it and with a little winky face, and he was about to start working on the sound. He planned to stop posting work in progress ROMs because he didn't want anybody to actually finish or beat the game before the final product was available. Also soon to be in the works, there would be an ending for the game and a setting that would move the jump button to the up movement of the joystick, so that way people with single-button controllers could play the game as well. Also to be added was some kind of audio signal that told you that Bentley's invincibility was about to wear off. Ooh, we'll talk about the invincibility later on. So the single-digit controller option and the invincibility warning were finished on August 15th, and Bob was planning to write the aforementioned MIDI Data to Pokey program over the following week or two. I believe he was working in C-sharp to write that. The next day, Bob posted a preliminary game description, and he announced a label contest. One problem, though, is that as Crystal Quest would be a 144-kilobyte game, it would require a cartridge board that could handle a game that size, and Bob couldn't find any new cartridge boards that could handle 144K. He even reached out to a couple of people who used to make those boards, but they weren't interested in making any more. Theoretically, a board from the game Jinx could be modified to run Crystal Quest, but Bob didn't want to do that if he could get a hold of new boards that could do the job as well. September 22nd, there was a new work-in-progress posted that contained all levels, some of the sounds, which would only be audible on the Pro System emulator, by the way, and not actual hardware. The work-in-progress also had warps and a secret level. The continue option was disabled at this point. Still on Bob's to-do list was to make an ending, make a sound indicating that Bentley Bear had been hurt, background sounds and music indicating invincibility, background music for each level, and theme music for the title screen. The next day, Bob posted a revised version of the work in progress for more compatibility with various emulators and devices. A week later, September 29th, there was a work in progress posted that actually had Tia sound because, well, he was running out of space on Pokey sound, so he tried to work the Tia in. There's a problem, though. The Pokey has four sound channels, but with the Tia, there's only room for one channel of background music. Regardless, the plan was that the final product would be XM only, and Ergo would be using the Yamaha sound chip on the XM. The continue option was re-enabled, and there was a half-finished ending. If you're looking for this version of the ROM, though, don't bother. It's since been removed. But Trevor emulated it in MESS, the uh, multi-system emulator, and he found that when Bentley jumped, he appeared as a thin strip of rainbow colors. So Bob fixed that issue and another issue that contained graphics corruptions if all five enemies happened to be on the screen. And of course, I'll talk about what those enemies are later on. So some time went by while people were testing the game and posting their comments and questions about how it's supposed to work. Is it me or does this game seem difficult? Why are some enemies dying when I hit them but others aren't? Is it supposed to be easy to defeat Berthilda on the first boss screen? Well, on December 11th, Bob chimed in and answered some of these questions. Yes, the game is more challenging because, well, a good deal of people who would play Crystal Quest would be very used to most side-scrolling platformers, and um, so Bob didn't want to make it too easy for them. But he compensated by allowing unlimited continues. 
And different enemies have different hit points, which is why some will go away if you hit them once, but some require more than one hit to go away. And yes, Berthilda is supposed to be easy on the first boss level so that the player could get familiar with her and how she moves. She gets more challenging with every level. By this time, TEP392 of Donkey Kong PK Donkey Kong XM fame stepped in to help finish the game to take some weight off of Bob's shoulders. But any changes in the game would be run by Bob before they were actually implemented. On January 5th, 2013, Bob said he was thinking of finishing the game as it was, with nothing left to do but complete the ending, mainly because of other things going on with his life, including a medical issue that came up at the time. So he posted his latest work-in-progress ROM later that day. After some discussions about the difficulty of level 2, um, that is, some found the later levels to be considerably easier than level 2, including me, by the way, Bob said that he agreed and he would look into making adjustments including moving the level 1 round 2 warp because he said it was too easy to find. He mentioned that every level except level 5 had a hidden warp on various sublevels. A new revision was posted on January 13th that made level 2 not only easier, but as Bob put it, prettier. A week later, there was a new ROM posted, and this time with a calculated bonus at the end of the game. The calculation was based on how many times you use the continue option, the highest bonus reserved for those who play through the entire game start to finish without using the continue option. At this point, if people were satisfied with the game's difficulty level, Bob would consider it done and would begin working on the music. On January 23rd, there was a new ROM with a few changes, and around this time is when Bob confessed that he had thoughts about porting the arcade game Astro Blaster to the 7800. Hmm... On January 27th, Trevor noticed that when Bentley is wearing the invincibility hat, his jumps look a little bit weird. Bob explained that it's because he didn't have enough room for the proper sprite definitions for that animation, so the jumping would look a little bit stiff. Bob also said that there would be some changes made to the enemy's artificial intelligence. January 31st, there was a new ROM posted. What was called a life meter was now called an energy meter and there was now a short delay before enemies would attack when Bentley reappears on the screen after losing a life. Bob was able to make new jumping and throwing sprites for when Bentley wears the invincibility hat. One of the changes he made was to remove a couple of enemies, freeing up some sprite space. The way the knight swings his sword was changed, so now the knight would be slightly more difficult than the coyote. But the next day, Bob posted a new ROM in response to the coyote being too difficult. Also, there was a slight change to Bentley's feet. By this time, Bob said he was still not ready to take pre-orders or even names for pre-orders, as he couldn't locate any boards necessary for the 144 kilobytes of space that Crystal Quest requires. Albert said there was a new board in the works, though, that could handle up to 256k, and that the prototypes would be ready soon, followed by a full production run. February 5th, a new ROM was posted that fixed a bug with enemy placement in the secret level. Still to be worked on at this point was the music, which Bob was having trouble with, and that frustrated him because he's a musician. But he had some music that he composed stashed away that he was considering using for Crystal Quest. There would be at least 10 pieces of music in the game. Title screen music, background music, and that's for six levels, so that's seven right there. End of level music, which was already in place, so that's eight. And music for when you defeat Berthilda, so that's 9. And then victory music, which is 10. But the issue that Bob was having was with the program he was developing to convert his Korg keyboard's MIDI output into pokey playable music. 
The program that was supposed to save him time was actually causing him to waste more time. Bob didn't want to step away from the project because when he did that before, he found himself losing interest. And at this point in the game, more than a year had gone by already since he started working on it and he didn't want to lose interest again. But Bob found a potential solution. An unnamed Atari AG user sent Bob a program that would take a MIDI file and convert its values. And uh, that Atari AG user would use that program for his own games. Bob's intention was to modify that program so that it would convert MIDI to pokey playable data that could be copied into the game. He also bought a USB to MIDI adapter for use with some good and free MIDI sequencing software. His hopes were that this move would make it easier for him to do music in future projects. Unfortunately, however, he found that using the USB MIDI adapter wouldn't work with his computer that was running Windows 7. Well, what a shock there. Oh, sorry, <laughs> he would need to use XP instead, and at some user's suggestions, he was going to try using VirtualBox to get it working, although he was concerned about that because he was worried that virtualization would introduce some unwanted latency. But flashing ahead to March 21st, Bob said that he was seriously considering releasing the game with only Tia sound, which would mean no background music, which didn't really bother him, because in his own gaming, he tended to turn down the music anyway. Whatever his final decision would be, he still wanted to figure out how to do MIDI to Pokey for future projects, as it'd be the only way he'd be able to make music for Atari 7800 games. He asked if anybody would have an issue with Crystal Quest being Tia only. A few didn't mind the possibility, but there were a few others who tried to encourage Bob to do what he could to make the Pokey music a reality. I would say a majority of people just wanted the game, period, regardless of what sound chip would be used. On April 24th, Bob said that he was, and I quote, raising the white flag on getting music into the game, at least with the technique he wanted to use of transferring MIDI data to Pokey. So he put out a call for somebody to create the 10 pieces of music for the game, ideally for Pokey Sound. Whoever did it would get credit in the manual, a free copy of the game, and a cut of the sales. And that was the same deal Bob struck with Pac-Man Red, who, as you probably know by now, helped with the graphics on some of Bob's games. And Bob said, and I quote, being a musician who had an independent album out, you can imagine that I've exhausted every idea I've had and how much it bothers me to do this. But on April 29th, Bob announced that somebody who was later revealed to be Atari age user Synth Papalooza, Synth Papalooza had been appointed to do the music for the game and it would follow the classical theme of the music that Crystal Castle started. For example, you probably remember Crystal Castle's using pieces of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. Uh, I don't know if I'd so much say that it was a theme in the game as it more was just Atari cheaping out because the music was public domain, but regardless, the plan was for Crystal Quest to be released 30 years to the day of the original Crystal Castles release, which would be part of the backstory of the game. When would the 30th anniversary have been? It would have been sometime in July 1983. I don't know the exact date, unfortunately. But on May 9th, Bob posted a YouTube link, uh, which no longer exists, by the way. And that YouTube link contained a preview of the music, and he was pretty excited about it. Although, probably not nearly as excited as other people who saw that video. On May 11th, as a curiosity, Bob posted the very first version of Crystal Quest that he had started working on a year and a half earlier before he had a good sense of how the game would progress. At that point, the game had an isometric view and it had no enemies and the level didn't have much to it. 
The ROM is still up there in the Crystal Quest work in progress thread if you're still interested. It's on page 25, or I can put a link in the show notes for uh, quick access for you. As of May 21st, two levels worth of music were almost finished. By June 1st, those levels music were done, as were the scores for the death animation and the end game, as Bob called it. Bob expressed great admiration and thanks for Synth Papalooza, who actually had to relearn making music for the Pokey because he hadn't done Pokey programming in years. On June 15th, Synth Papalooza posted a list of music that had been completed. At that point, all that was left to do was music for the final level and the hidden level. He was also considering having separate invincibility music for those two levels. On June 24th, Synth Papalooza posted that he had just finished making a pokey version of Vrosa Toast from the opera Carmen, which required him to sit through, and I quote, horrible opera singing for three hours to get it done. And at this point, all of the music for Crystal Quest was done. That evening, Bob posted the first release candidate with a warning that would only play correctly in the Pro System emulator. Some Atari Age users, including Bob himself, found that the routine that wrote to the Pokey chip would interfere with some of the graphics, and the fix would be to redo a bank switching method. And if you don't know what bank switching is, um, I can't really explain it all that well myself, but I think it has something to do with uh, emptying one piece of RAM and sticking other data in it in its place and just basically swapping things in and out when you run out of memory. But I could be wrong. I don't know. But anyway. People also found that the boss fight music would continue to play while the bonus counter was counting down instead of ending. That was technically a bug, but Bob actually liked the effect, so he kept it in for the next release candidate, which was posted on July 1st. And in that release candidate, there was a bug that Kevin Mose 3 found at the end of level 4 round 3, involving a sprite on the screen that would literally make finishing the level impossible, so Bob fixed that bug. Trevor found that Berthilda's sprite was split into two pieces down the middle, which Bob saw before but thought that he had fixed. Well, actually, I should explain it this way. Berthilda is actually made up of four sprites, two on the left, two on the right. And their positions would be updated in different frames, causing Berthilda to appear split into two pieces. This problem only happened in round eight of level one, and only when Berthilda would fly backwards. Some users found that Berthilda, though, she was too easy to beat, so on July 11th, Bob said he would make some changes to what happens when you encounter her, including reducing the power of the jewel that you have if it's higher than a certain jewel value. This change and the split witch phenomenon I just talked about a moment ago were implemented into the next release candidate, along with a couple of other fixes, and that release candidate was posted on July 13th. The next day, Bob posted a fourth release candidate that fixed the issues that Trevor found with the jewel placement. But the final boss battle was too difficult, so release candidate 5 posted July 18th took care of that issue. August 8th, Bob said that he's not taking names for a waitlist just yet. Isn't this the third time I had to say that? But why wasn't he doing it yet? Well, because there was a possible bug that Kevin Most 3 found. On September 1st, the game now appeared to be free of bugs, so release candidate 6 was posted and Bob was now waiting for boards to make some cartridges. On September 5th, Bob posted a picture of a cartridge shell with Crystal Quest labels, but that's what it was. It was just a bare cartridge shell. It didn't actually have a board inside. 
The end label was different from what ended up being on the final release product. It was yellow with purple text, and it was kind of in the font face that Crystal Castles used on its arcade marquee. And the main level is also slightly different from what would eventually be released. So October happens, and the game is demoed on an Atari 7800 with an XM unit at Portland Retro Gaming Expo, much to the delight of Atari 7800 fans. Bob now had a prototype 256K cartridge board, and he found that it worked well. Bob posted a PDF version of the manual on October 27th, and then fixed a few typos and posted an updated version two days later, along with another version of the ROM. But he removed that ROM after Kevin Mose 3 found a bug in level 6 round 5. And while he was at it, Bob wanted to try a new routine that would allow seven enemies on the screen. But it turned out that that new routine introduced some graphical problems, so no go with that. The next, and what Bob hoped was the final released candidate, the XM version, meaning that most users wouldn't hear any sound, was posted on October 30th, followed by an all-pokey version the next day. So, more time goes on, and the anticipation is just building up. Nothing but very minor updates through March 2014, already past the 30th anniversary of Crystal Castles. One of the reasons the game still hadn't been released was that Bob had to make a pretty significant relocation to Florida from, I believe, New York. In response to a question as to whether you'd need an XM for Crystal Quest, Bob said the cartridges would be standalone games, implying that they'd use onboard pokey chips. On March 24th, Bob decided to build a waitlist from the flood of Atari Age users saying they wanted to get the cartridge. However, because of the pokey chips and the cost of the new cartridge boards, Bob warned that Crystal Quest would be more expensive than his previous games were. So, jumping ahead to August now, August 14th specifically, in preparation for Classic Game Fest in Austin, Albert posted a picture of a Crystal Quest cartridge board that is done on CPU Wiz's Versa board, complete with pokey chip and an assembled cartridge with labels. The main label design was tweaked a bit, and the end label now had the sky blue background with slightly revamped title text to make it look even closer to the Crystal Castle's title text than before. Word on the street was that people were lining up at Classic Game Fest to try Crystal Quest. In mid-September, however, this is another September that went by, the game was still not available. Its non-appearance, though, was attributed to the lack of pokey chips. But that was pretty much the last we heard about the progress of Crystal Quest until November of 2015, when Trevor posted a complete gameplay video with Bob's approval. Pokies were still too elusive for the game to get a release, unfortunately, and the long-discussed Pokey clone called the Hokey was nowhere in sight. And, of course, progress on the XM had been halted several times, due primarily to some health issues that Kurt Vendel had to deal with and would continue to deal with. September 12, 2016, Bob said that he thought Albert had gotten a small batch of Pokey chips, and Ergo would soon be making a limited run of Crystal Quest. And indeed, on October 16th, it was announced that Crystal Quest, along with Froggy, Super Circus Atari Age, and Time Salvo, would at long last be available in the Atari Age store soon. Albert said he hoped they would be available in November. Due to delays beyond control with boxes being printed and other obstacles, 2016 ended without these homebrews being released. An interesting development happened, though, and not necessarily a good one. An Atari Age user going by the handle 
Dodge Ram Man posted that he had received his copy of Crystal Quest for Christmas. He said it was a present from his wife, who ordered a few 7800 games for him from another website. Turns out that Bob made a small handful of copies of Crystal Quest and gave them to um, what he called certain people, as he said, which I'm guessing is something he would regularly do. This incident, though, made him decide not to do that again. I think the story was that uh, Dodge Ram Man's wife bought a few 7800 games and then the owner of the site contacted her and said, hey, well, I also have this game called Crystal Quest. You want to throw that into? And she said, yeah. But anyway, um, let's go ahead to March 29th, 2017. Albert announced that a batch of homebrews, 25 each, would be available for a pre-sale to Atari Age subscribers only. There were three Atari 2600 titles, Anguna, Assembloids, and Drive, and there was Rat Catcher for the 5200, and Time Salvo, Super Circus Atari Age, and of course, Crystal Quest for the 7800. Curiously missing, of course, was the previously mentioned Froggy, which still isn't available and may not be available until early 2018 at the earliest. But anyway, Albert would only allow one copy each per customer. Albert posted an update on April 29th explaining some delays. Specifically for Crystal Quest, his plan was to add the Pokey chips to the cartridges via a socket rather than solder the Pokey chips directly to the board, just in case there was a problem with a Pokey chip and it needed to be swapped out. Unfortunately, he misplaced the 40-pin sockets that he had ordered for this particular purpose, so he ordered a new batch of sockets. And due to the extra work involved in constructing a Crystal Quest cartridge, that game would cost an extra $5 upon release in the Atari Age store. On May 3rd, Albert received soft proofs, that is, proofs that were in PDF format as opposed to hard copy. He got those soft proofs for the labels, and he approved them for the next phase, which would be inspecting the press proofs, the hard copies, that is. On May 10th, Albert received those press proofs, and he posted a picture of them. His verdict? They looked great, and he'd use the proofs on some test cartridges. Later on in May, Albert was dealing with issues with the printing company, specifically receiving stock copies of labels rather than the custom ones he actually ordered. Now, that issue on top of a planned trip out of town to watch a rocket launch at NASA delayed the release of the homebrews a little bit further. On June 13th, the labels were in production and Albert received them on June 22nd. On June 28th, most of the new homebrews had been put together with only a few copies of Crystal Quest to be finished. The next day, Albert was working on putting the games into their respective boxes and would be finishing with Crystal Quest on the 30th. Shipments would be going out on July 1st, except um, he actually shipped half the orders a day ahead of schedule. He was still waiting on more parts necessary to build the remaining Crystal Quest cartridges, but all of the remaining copies were actually shipped on July 1st. Those nine homebrews, including Crystal Quest, were made available to order in the Atari Age store on July 18th, and as of this recording, Crystal Quest is available in the Atari Age store, complete in box, in two different configurations. For $70, you can get the complete game, or for $55, you get the game and the box and everything, but you have to supply the Pokey chip, be it via a ball blazer cartridge or just a standalone Pokey chip. So, wow, that is... I think the cradle to grave on that game was what, six years, but wow, that was something else. So, Hey, now that we know how crystal quest came to be, let's talk about the game itself.
Before we talk about Crystal Quest, though, we must talk about the original game featuring Bentley Bear, which of course is Crystal Castles. Crystal Castles was an arcade game, and of course you probably know it was available on the Atari 2600. And apparently there was a prototype for the 7800 as well, but as far as I know, that prototype has not yet been found, unfortunately. What about the backstory of Crystal Castles? Well, that's up for debate. According to the arcade flyer, Bentley was actively seeking out a fortune and found the potential for said fortune in the Crystal Castles, with all the gems laying about and everything. But if you look at the Atari 2600 version's manual, it clearly states that Bentley was taking a nap while he was looking for poached salmon, and he woke up inside a huge castle that was decorated with jewels, and the only way to escape was to harvest those jewels in the castles before Berthilda the Witch and her evil cronies would, and I quote, send him into permanent hibernation. So... I guess whichever storyline you prefer, he just he was just greedy for fortune, or he was trying to escape Bertilda, or Bertilda, Bertilda, whatever her name is. Anyway, whatever the case, there are 10 castles that Bentley is going to traverse, and his goal is to gather as many gems as possible, or at the very least, make sure that he grabbed the last gem in each castle before one of Bertilda's previously mentioned cronies grabbed the last gem. So in case you've never seen or played Crystal Castles, that was the thing. It wasn't so much that you grabbed everything, it's that you were the last one to grab something. Like there'd be crystal balls, gem eaters, and trees that would grab the gems, but the goal was for you to be the last character to grab one, and you'd get a bonus if you did. Anyway, in addition to the, to the nasty trees, the gem eaters, and the crystal balls, there were also swarms of bees and ghosts that uh, would be among... Berthilda's minions, and if Bentley were to make contact with any of those enemies, he would lose a life unless he crossed paths with a gem eater while the gem eater was actually in the process of swallowing a gem. And in fact, Bentley would get a 500 point bonus for doing that and destroy the gem eater in the process. Bentley's defense against the trees, and also this works for the gem eaters, is to freeze them temporarily by jumping over them. Bees and ghosts and a skeleton, by the way. I think I forgot to mention there's a skeleton. I don't think there's really a defense against them. There are some other traps that Bentley needed to watch out for, such as Berthilda's cauldron and, of course, Berthilda herself. And uh, Berthilda was, I don't know, she was kind of clumsy because she left her invincibility hat just laying around in some of the castles and, in some cases, unaccompanied. She didn't know where it was. I mean, who does that? Do you leave your invincibility hat laying around for anybody to grab? Well, guess what? Bentley could grab that. And if he did, he would be invincible temporarily to all the hazards. And not only that, but if Berthilda was on the screen, if he had the hat on, he could actually make Berthilda disappear just by walking over her. And while he was at it, Bentley could also grab a pot of honey for bonus points. But the uh, problem with that is the pot of honey seems to have been the property of the bees. Because whenever the bees came down, they would kind of hang around the pot of honey. But if the bees come into the castle after Bentley grabs the pot of honey, they chase Bentley around. Crystal Castles, as an arcade game, has a few unique features. For one thing, Bentley was controlled not by a joystick, but by a trackball. Which is actually pretty cool because uh, it's a wide open field for a lot of the places. 
which means precision is kind of important. You can actually be very precise in your movement with a trackball. You can slow down, you can speed up. It was a great method of control. And also, Crystal Castles was among the first arcade games, possibly the first arcade game that had a natural ending, meaning that you could actually win the game. That was a pretty new concept at the time because the typical video game trope, if you will, was that you could keep playing endlessly until eventually you'd lose all your lives and the game would get progressively harder, assuming, of course, the game didn't have a kill screen. And Crystal Castles also had hidden warps in the castles, so you could skip to a later level and get some bonus points, a pretty good chunk of bonus points, actually. Crystal Quest, of course, is the unofficial sequel. All the enemies, traps, and gems from Crystal Castles are also in Crystal Quest, as well as a few hidden warps. But now, there was a definitive backstory for this game. Berthilda had been planning for 30 years, give or take, to get her revenge on Bentley Bear. She stole five Crystals of Life, and the job of the Crystals of Life was basically to maintain a reasonable balance of good and evil. In this platform game, Bentley's goal is to defeat Berthilda and recover the five Crystals of Life from her, while avoiding her minions and the traps that have been set. There are five different levels, one for each Crystal of Life, plus one additional hidden level. As with the original Crystal Castles, there are warps scattered in various parts of the first three levels as well. Bentley has a limited amount of energy that can be, well, partially at least, replenished by grabbing a pot of honey. And grabbing a pot of honey also adds 50 points to your score. If Bentley makes contact with one of the environmental hazards, such as rocks, fire, spikes, or Berthilda's cauldron, he loses some energy. Well, truth is, he loses energy constantly. It, it depletes very, very gradually, but if he bumps into fire, rocks, spikes, or the cauldron, he loses more energy. If Bentley makes contact with one of the enemies, or if he falls into a pit, or somehow falls off the screen, or if he runs out of energy, he loses one of three lives. For every 50,000 points you score, you get an extra life. There are also several bonus prizes scattered throughout the game that will give you an extra life. Uh, the thing is, they're hard to see. And uh, I'll put it to you this way. When I found one of those extra life prizes, it made me think of the dot that you had to collect in the Atari 2600 game adventure if you wanted to activate the Warren Robinette Easter egg. But anyway, at the beginning of each of your lives, there's a jewel that you have to pick up. It's a crystal, it's a jewel, whatever you want to call it. Well, I guess you don't have to, but uh, if you expect to get far in the game, you have to grab the jewel because it essentially turns into a weapon. So if you expect to be able to fight off enemies, you better grab that jewel. And that first jewel is a white one, and the white jewel gives Bentley ammunition that's, uh, that has the power of one hit point. Red jewels have two hit points worth of power, and the green jewel doubles however many hit points that Bentley has accumulated, maxing out at eight. Which kind of tells you right away there's a little strategy there. You don't necessarily want to grab every jewel you see, because if you have, say, a red jewel, you don't want to grab a white one, or else you're going to be downgraded back to just one hit point worth of firepower. And uh, by the way, when Bentley throws his ammunition, it's kind of in, a, in an arc. So for some of your targets, you have to kind of judge how far you should be because it's not a straight path. 
it curves. But anyway, on his way to battle Berthilda, Bentley will encounter many enemies that he can destroy with his jewel weapon. The nasty trees from Crystal Castles, well, they're back for Crystal Quest, and uh, they simply just move in a straight line and they will come to a stop if they encounter any kind of object in the way, like a wall or a rock or something like that. It only takes one hit point to knock out the trees and you get 150 points for doing that. Skeletons, again, returning from Crystal Castles, those have one hit point of power and again are worth 150 points, but they actually have this magical ability to jump over anything in their way. And if they were to fall into a pit that would normally kill Bentley, sometimes they jump right out of it. So be careful with that. The gem eaters make a return again, except as far as I know, they don't eat gems. At least when I played the game, they didn't eat any gems. But uh, knowing that you can't do the little walk over a gem eater while it swallows a gem, you can't do that trick. Instead, you have to actually throw a projectile at it and gem eaters have two hit points, and they're worth 500 points. So yeah, if you have the white jewel, you have to hit the gem eater twice to destroy it. The swarm of bees is back again, and the swarm of bees also has two hit points worth of power, and it is worth 250 points. Personally, I found the bee swarm pretty easy to deal with. What happens is the swarm of bees flies from the right side of the screen to the left, and when it's right above Bentley, the swarm of bees starts heading down. So what I like to do is get as far to the left as I reasonably can, and then when the bees come over to Bentley and start going down, I move over to the right a couple of steps and then turn around and then fire two quick shots at them. And of course, only one shot is necessary if you have a jewel more powerful than the white jewel. One thing that Crystal Quest has that Crystal Castles didn't is zombies. You know the enemy is a zombie if it has purple hair, so they're pretty easy to spot. Zombies have four hit points, and they will score you 500 points if you destroy them. Uh, the thing is, to destroy a zombie, your projectiles must actually land on its head. Otherwise, it passes right through the zombie, so it's got to be a headshot. Another new enemy is a coyote, which I first thought it was a purple kangaroo, and then when I got the, the actual game and saw the manual, found out that it was a coyote. The coyote is going to move kind of back and forth as it moves from uh, right to left after you, and it's going to try to claw you. The coyote has three hit points, and it's worth 750 points to your score. There are also ghosts in the game, just like in Crystal Castles, and uh, I couldn't stand the ghosts at first. They're kind of, it, it, when you first encounter a ghost, when you first play the game, it's it seems unpredictable because they have kind of a wavy up and down movement when they uh, move, and they're kind of hard to hit. But after you get a little practice, you'll be able to come up with some kind of a throwing technique so you know when to hit the uh, throw button or fire button, whatever you want to call it. Ghosts have two hit points, and they're worth 250 points on your score. And sometimes there will be a floating head that appears on the right side of the screen, and it'll move toward you very slowly. But once it gets within a certain distance from you, it will attack you fast. Destroy one of these one-hit heads and you get 750 points. The Crystal Balls from Crystal Castles make a return as well, and they actually hover. They fly toward you, and they have five hit points. My advice is if you only have the white jewel, just run away from those things. Jump over them, whatever. Get away from them. But if you manage to destroy a Crystal Ball, you get 1,000 points. Another new enemy in the game is a knight. There are knights that guard Berthilda's castle, and I, 
seems at least that's what the manual says, but I'm sure I've seen them nowhere near Berthilda's castle too. Uh, they come in the later levels. They're not in the earlier levels. They have four hit points and they're worth 400 points in your score. And they are difficult to destroy. If you fire directly at a knight, it's going to knock away your shot with its sword. So you'll waste time just trying to shoot the knight down. You have to attack the knight either from above or from behind him. And there's also mini Berthilda, which kind of resembles what Berthilda looks like in uh, Crystal Castles. And they're basically smaller versions of Berthilda the Witch. I don't remember where I first encountered the mini Berthildas, but I seem to remember they were part of the battle against Berthilda starting maybe in level three. And they also appear in the final battle at the end of the game, but I know I've seen them in at least one other place. But regardless, mini Berthilda has four hit points. And for every time you destroy Mini Berthilda, remember, there might be multiple Mini Berthildas on the screen, but a Mini Berthilda is worth 2,500 points on your score. And of course, the main number one enemy is Berthilda the Witch, and she appears at the end of each level. She's basically the boss character. She has a whopping 32 hit points. And here's the killer. If you have a jewel that has more than two hit points worth of damage, it's going to be downgraded to two hit points, which means that you have to hit Berthilda either 16 or 32 times to beat her. And not only that, but after you beat her, she drops a crystal of life and then you actually have to walk over and pick it up. And what kills some people is that they'll run out of energy just when they kill Berthilda and they don't have enough energy to cross over and pick up the crystal, meaning they have to start over again and fight her again. Oh, isn't that fun? But uh, actually, in my opinion, it is. But yeah, we'll get to my opinion a little bit later. Oh, and there's also another element from Crystal Castles that carried over into Crystal Quest. And that is particularly the way that Bentley... I don't, I don't know if I want to say dies, but uh, let's just say loses a life, even though he doesn't really lose a life necessarily. But the animation from Crystal Castles is there, complete with his little dialogue balloon. And just like with the arcade game, he will say either, ouch, oh no, bye, or he'll have that little Qbert-esque censored sweary balloon thing. I I don't know which came first, that or Qbert. Huh, they were both from 1983, I believe. But anyway, unlike with Crystal Castles, I do believe what determines which version of that dialogue bubble comes up. I think it's random in Crystal Quest, and I think in Crystal Castles, it depends on which life it is that Bentley loses first, second, third, or whatever. Something about the original Crystal Castles is that the music is very memorable, and it's, it, it used uh, some uh, classical themes. And I mentioned before that uh, I don't think it was necessarily Atari's intention to have a classical theme. I think it was more that they were just trying to use music that they wouldn't have to pay for because, hey, the music was long in the public domain by that point. But uh, there's a lot of music in this game, and as you heard when I talked about the development cycle of this game, it was a very important thing for Bob to have in the game, and of course, for Synth Papalooza, he was so they were both so proud of the music in this game, and they should be. Uh, I'll talk about each of the musical pieces here. On the title screen, after the Atari logo, when you fire up the cartridge, 
you hear a song called Teddy Bear's Picnic, written by John Walter Bratton in 1907, with lyrics by Jimmy Kennedy, who wrote the lyrics in 1932. And actually, this brought up a very peculiar point, because that remember what I said about public domain? Well, those involved in making the music for the game had a little bit of concern about copyright here. But since the lyrics were written in 1932, the lyrics were still under copyright protection. But because the music was composed in 1907, the copyright expired and it's now public domain. So they figured, well, we don't have the lyrics here, so we should be safe with that. But that's the name of the little bouncy tune that plays on the title screen. And uh, you would not believe the number of covers of Teddy Bear's Picnic that exist. Just go to YouTube and type Teddy Bear's Picnic. Everybody except the Beatles, Beach Boys, Birds, Doors, and Monkeys have covered that song. It's insane. Even Jerry Garcia, for crying out loud. When you lose a life, you get a little section of March of the Toy Soldiers from Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker Suite. And um, it's the same music from Crystal Castles if the round ends when the enemy collects the last gem. If you have the Invincibility hat on, there are three different possible uh, musical pieces that you'll hear during your Invincibility. You'll hear either Russian Dance from the Nutcracker. Um, if you don't know what Russian Dance is, well, of course, we're going to have a little section of it here for you playing in the background here. But it's also that uh, uh, section from the Nutcracker that you always, always, always hear in the first Christmas movie of the year in the uh, uh, trailers that they show on TV. It, so I always, I always like to pay close attention to that. Like when the fall happens, see who's the first movie to use that music. Uh, you may hear the William Tell overture by Giochino Rossini. That's uh, the same music that was used for the Lone Ranger. Or you may hear the overture from Carmen by Georges Bizet. That may only be in the secret level, but I'm not sure. During the boss scenes, you'll hear Mephisto Waltz by Franz Liszt. If you defeat Berthilda, you hear the climax of the 1812 overture, also by Tchaikovsky. The level one music is Dance of the Hours from the opera La Gioconda by, uh, I'm not sure how this person's name is pronounced, but I'm going to guess, Amilcare Poncelli. And you may know it better as Hello Mutta, Hello Fada by Alan Sherman. Hello Mutta, Hello Fada, here I am at... Camp Granada. Or if you grew up when I grew up, you might know it better as uh, it was used in a TV commercial uh, with uh, d with uh, similar lyrics to the uh, Hello Mother, Hello Father lyrics. Hello Mother, Hello Father, greetings from Camp Hiawatha. The level two music is Waltz of the Flowers, and the level three music is Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies, both of which are from The Nutcracker. The level four music uses a piece called The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Scherzo After a Ballad by Goethe by Paul Dukas. And uh, Synth Papalooza said that he used that because he felt that that would be the perfect music for that level, and I can totally see that. The level five music is Mars the Bringer of War by Gustav Holst. The hidden level music is Volter Toast from Act Two of Carmen, again by Georges Bizet. And at the end of the game, you hear a different section of March of the Toy Soldiers from the Nutcracker. Uh, think the Smurfberry Crunch commercial music, if you remember that, from the 80s. That, in a nutshell, a very large nutshell, if you will, is the actual game Crystal Quest. 
And one thing I should talk about the Crystal Quest is that the difficulty switches determine how your controller is set up. One difficulty switch controls whether you are using a two-button joystick or a one-button joystick, and the other determines how, if you're using a two-button joystick, how those two buttons are laid out. One will operate as both shoot and run, so you can't really shoot and run at the same time, and the other will operate as jump. Having said that, before the game was actually released, I had loaded the most recent ROM onto my Mateos cart, and I was finding that no matter what configuration I tried, I couldn't fire or run, I could just walk and jump. And people were telling me to adjust the difficulty switches, and I swear it wasn't working. And here's the thing, I might have mentioned this before, but my Pie Factory podcast co-host and friend Jimmy G, when we went to Midwest Gaming Classic, we had a table set up at Midwest Gaming Classic, Dan Lucen, who is in charge of Midwest Gaming Classic, he had told us ahead of time, he said, if you really want to attract people to your table, you should give them something to do. The most obvious thing would be have them play some games. And uh, the problem was Pie Factory Podcast is an arcade podcast. Oh, but the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast is not. So I figured, hey, you know what? This will be a good way to plug that podcast. And Jim said, really, we should show off some of the new homebrews. And so he wrote to Bob and wanted to get his blessing to have the new homebrews up for demonstration. Like I'd load them up on my Mateos cart. Jim would put them on his Raspberry Pi on which he ran RetroPie. And Bob said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. I'd, I'd really like it if you guys would do that. And when Bob saw that I was having problems, I couldn't set up my controller. He said, you know what? Why don't I send you one of my cartridges? I know that it absolutely works, so let me send that to you for the show, and you can send it back when you're done. And uh, there's a story I love to tell with this. I love this story so much that uh, I don't think I've ever told it actually to anybody, but I got the cart from Bob, and we brought it to Midwest Gaming Classic, and I brought an envelope with me so that I could make sure that I shipped it right back to him as soon as we were done. Now, here's the thing. My wife is a teacher, and she was on spring break the week following Midwest Gaming Classic. So the original plan was I'd come back home that Sunday night, and then the next day we'd leave for the airport, but we'd leave nice and early so we'd have enough time to drop the dog off at her boarding place, and then we'd stop at the post office so I could ship the cartridge back to Bob. But at Midwest Gaming Classic, I found that uh, another ROM of Crystal Quest that I loaded up on my Mateos cart suddenly decided to start working with the difficulty switches again. And so just that Saturday, after the Saturday portion of the show was over at Midwest Gaming Classic, when I got back to my hotel room, I put Bob's cartridge in the envelope. I took it down to the desk and I said, hey, would you guys mind shipping this out for me? It's already pre-stamped and everything. It's ready to go. And they said, sure. Well... What happens? Well, Midwest Gaming Classic happens. I go home Sunday night as planned, and then Monday morning, my wife and I are getting ready for the airport, and we get a text from Southwest Airlines saying that our flight was canceled. Immediately, my wife goes into mini panic mode. She goes straight into the living room. She calls Southwest Airlines and surprisingly got right through to an agent. And she said, help us. Our flight was canceled. And um, the agent on the phone said, well... If you can get to the airport right now, here's a flight you can, we can uh, rebook you on. And so we basically threw the dog in the car. We went to the boarding place, dropped her off, and then sped it down Lakeshore Drive and Interstate 55, got to Midway just in time. And um, so that was that. Now, if 
I had d- stuck to my original plan, just held on to the cartridge until that Monday. Uh, Bob wouldn't have gotten his cartridge right away, and he probably would have been saying, oh, geez, there's somebody else I can't trust. <laughs> so, oh, But anyway, the reason I mentioned all this is because after I did my stream of my playthrough in Crystal Quest, Andy Ryerson from Super Podcast Brother messaged me, and he said, you know what? Suddenly, my cartridge isn't respecting the difficulty switches, and I've tried it in three different consoles, and no matter what I try, it's not working. I said, you're kidding me. I said, did you restart your console after you switched? He said, yeah, I did all that stuff. He said, I don't know what happened. Is it possible that something went wrong in my cartridge or something? And that just seemed kind of weird. A little while later, he messaged me back. He said, you know what? It suddenly started working again. So I don't exactly know how that happened. Uh, That happened to both of us. One on a ROM and a Mateos cart and one on an actual Crystal Quest cartridge. So I'm not sure what happened there. I'm just curious as if uh, any of you have experienced that. Uh, Let me know. But hey, I just wanted to kind of uh, talk about that. I'm sorry if I kind of went off on a tangent, but hey, it's my podcast. I call the shots, right? Oh, well. So I think we should hear what other people have to say about Crystal Quest. So let's uh, take a look at some feedback. At least we still have the Bentley. British to the core. Bentley. You can probably lip sync to this by now, but as I usually do, I asked for feedback on Atari Age. Toiletoon says Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest gives the 7800 another excellent platformer. Compared side to side, it edges out Scrapyard Dog for playability. Pokey adds excellent music. Oh, Toiletoons, oh man. You're kind of like me in that I actually don't hate Scrapyard Dog at all. A lot of people give it so much, so much flack. I don't think it's a bad game at all, but yeah, absolutely. I think Crystal Quest beats Scrapyard Dog hands down, hands down. Uh, moving on to Jinx, who says about Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest, the most ambitious 7800 homebrew to ever be developed. With amazing graphics and pokey sound, a solid platformer that is challenging and makes you want to give it another try to beat that evil witch before your energy runs out. Best accomplished with a gem power-up. The more you suck at it, the harder it gets. <laughs> Any 7800 fan or owner of the 7800 should definitely get a copy to see what those crazy homebrew people can do. <laughs> Thanks, Jinx. I mean, isn't that the case, though? The more you suck at it, the harder it gets. Isn't that true for any game? though? <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, this is a pretty freaking ambitious homebrew. I cannot disagree. I, I absolutely cannot disagree with that at all in the slightest Trevor says, it's one thing to lay claim of what a console is capable or how good a game can be for the system. It's quite another to achieve what is one of the greatest games ever to be released on the system, for it to be an original, and to rival some of the best platformers of its contemporaries. Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest is that game. For those who have never played or never seen the game, the best reference point is to imagine a cross between Super Mario Bros., and Wonder Boy Hudson Soft's Adventure Island. Player gets to choose whether they wish to use a compatible 2600 VCS controller for one-button utilization, jump managed by pressing up, or the standard two-button functionality. One button serves as jump, the other for run, and shoot. Button mappings are swappable, and all controller configuration option settings are managed by the difficulty switches in front of the console. 
The game starts with Bentley leaving his cave, venturing into the woods and onto afterward a plethora of other landscapes, ice stage, water stage, underground, caverns, castles, and more are a part of the various traversed areas. Beautiful parallax scrolling is seen often in the game. Bentley, as well as all other characters, are well-designed and defined. Obvious nods to the original arcade classic Crystal Castles is seen throughout. Most importantly, controls are tight and accurate. Bentley moves fluidly, and jump management is easy to control. Shooting gems is also smooth, and overall physics are handled beautifully. The game is truly something to relish in, as there will be no flying through this game, no speed runs easily achieved, as enemy encounter and placement is not always the same for all the time for certain sections and conditions. So, while there may not necessarily be a fixed pattern regarding enemy encounter, what there is in place is different attack, and in some cases defense patterns, to be learned and mastered to best and easiest defeat enemies. There are ample energy boost courtesy of honeypots and different jewels that will determine hit strength and number of points damage. The manual goes into details, but there needs to be some thought at times regarding when and even if a certain jewel should be picked up, and there is a chance Bentley could actually decrease his hit power depending on previous jewels acquired. The music is quite excellent. What was originally intended to be the norm for many Atari 7800 games to include a sound chip within the cart, but was never really pursued besides two titles from the original line, Commando and Ballblazer, has been brought to fruition here with Pokey. What may be familiar, and then again perhaps not so familiar tunes, are wonderfully composed and marvelously presented. Hidden warps, free lives, and even a secret level are included in this quest. While the game can be completed in about an hour, and substantially less than that utilizing the various warps, others may spend a considerable longer time, especially newcomers. The game is indeed challenging at spots, but in no capacity unfair. It provides unlimited continues in which the aforementioned warps and free lives scattered in spots throughout the game. A true sense of accomplishment after each boss is defeated at the end of each level, in part due to each subsequent encounter, the witch is more formidable than the last time. A total of 40 standard rounds plus an additional hidden level provide a total of 48 rounds to be uncovered and conquered. What seemed like a dream years ago has become a reality, having such a well-polished game demonstrating what the 7800 is capable of and is truly platforming gaming excellence. The challenge is inviting. The game magnificently executed. This is not only the game to play, it is the game to own. Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest cannot be recommended enough. It's fantastic. All right, why am I not surprised by this feedback from Trevor? He always goes into some great detail. <laughs> but um, amen, Trevor, amen. What more can I say? And man, I really need to read that manual more just to get some more ideas for the game. And by the way, going back to that, how it's a cross between Super Mario Brothers and uh, Adventure Island, I've never played Adventure Island, so I can't vouch for that. But what I can say about Super Mario Brothers, when uh, Jimmy G and I had uh, Crystal Quest out for demonstration at Midwest Gaming Classic earlier this year, uh, there was some kid who kept coming by to try it out. And at one point he's like, he said, well, how does this thing work anyway? And uh, Jim said, well, 
think of it as Super Mario Brothers. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he did. And suddenly he was doing really, really, really well. He was impressing the heck out of me, I got to say. And he kept coming back to try again. <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely, if you, if you know Super Mario Brothers, you'll adapt to uh, Crystal Quest pretty easily. Yeah, excellent music. I totally agree as, as I usually agree with your thoughts. And um, really, I mean, after reading your words, Trevor, all I can think is, Dang, he's right. He's right. Uh, this might be the number one killer app for the Atari 7800, maybe even beyond Food Fight. Yeah, it's that good. But thank you, as usual, Trevor. Swami says about Crystal Quest, another well-done game. Very nicely done with great fun music from the pokey. Several twists in puzzle or timing to figure out along the way. It becomes more enjoyable the more you play it and the further you get. The multiple functions of fire, jump, and speed add more to the fun, along with all the different fun, creepy villains. Yeah, well said, Swami. And yeah, it does seem that Crystal Quest has pretty much everything you could ever want in a platform game. Everything you want, it's there. It really is. And I know that I read this last episode, but but uh, Gambler172, I figured I better cover this because it talks about this episode's game. This is, uh, he was commenting on both Crystal Quest and Mooncresta. He says, normally Bentley is the best 7800 game ever, but for some reason, Mooncresta is my number one. Both games are absolutely top. And hey, what more can I say about that? And uh, let's see, I got an email from TrekMD. Let's see what he has to say. He says, greetings, Sean. Well, greetings to you, TrekMD. That old adage, time flies when you're... Well, time just flies. When I sent you my last bit of feedback on Mooncresta, I figured I'd have plenty of time to sit and write my feedback for the next game, Crystal Quest, and here I am finding myself writing this up with less time than I had expected. This weekend is also Free Play Florida. Oh, that's right. That's another big show. Another retro event that I will be attending this year since this one is relatively close to me. I'm looking forward to this event, which this year has an exclusive game release for the 2600 called Free Play Florida. Free Play Florida is run by a nonprofit organization, so sales of these complete boxed games help support them. No new games for the 7800 that I'm aware of, but should there be any, I will report back in my next feedback email. Oh, cool. Now, how about I talk about the game for this episode, Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest. Atari first introduced gamers to Bentley Bear in the arcade game Crystal Castles. In that game, Bentley collected gems through various castles, avoided various enemies, and defeated the witch Berthilda. That, however, is not the end of the story. After 30 years, Berthilda returns with a vengeance. She has stolen the five crystals of life, breaking the balance between good and evil. It is now up to the brave Bentley Bear to collect the crystals, beat Berthilda, and restore the balance. Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest is one of those what-if games. The game demonstrates what the 7800 is capable of and makes you wonder what things might have been like if a title like this had been released in the heyday of the console. Crystal Quest takes all the elements from Crystal Castles and reshapes them into a fantastic platformer. 
Be prepared to face the gem eaters, nasty trees, bees, skeletons, ghosts, and many of the enemies you already know, including Berthilda herself, but in totally different worlds. These worlds include ice, water, underground, castles, caverns, and others. Oh, thank you for mentioning that, TrekMD. I should have mentioned that before. Anyway, <laughs> through these, you will also find items that will help you complete your next quest, such as colored jewels, honeypots, and magic hats that make you invincible. Crystal Quest has fantastic graphics, tight controls, and excellent music thanks to the Pokey Chip. You have the choice of using a 2600 joystick or the 7800 joystick, with the latter using each button for a different function. The game's challenge is well-balanced, and in good platformer tradition, it has warps to skip levels. The game also offers unlimited continues, so you can keep playing for as long as you want until you finish the quest. This game is the jewel of 7800 homebrews. I see what you did there, Eugenio. <laughs> this game is the jewel of 7800 homebrews right now, and one that is an absolute must-have. Bob truly created something very special with this game. Until next time, Eugenio. Hey, excellent, well-said stuff right there, Eugenio. Um, I want to focus for the moment on one of those last points you made. This game is a jewel of 7800 homebrews right now. And yeah, I usually mention if a homebrew is one of the top sellers in the Atari Age store, uh, Crystal Quest is too new. But I'm sure that it will be a bestseller, at least as long as it's possible for people to buy it What, what with uh, needing the Pokey chip and everything. Um, if the XM module does get finished, I'm sure you could probably play Crystal Quest without needing a Pokey, as it would use the Pokey or Hokey or whatever that is on the XM itself. But yeah, it's worth mentioning free play. I really need to pay more attention to the shows that are coming. I have to be more on the ball than I have been with the shows. It's pretty big news when these shows happen, so I should be able to talk about them before they actually happen. Hey, Midwest Gaming Classic is in April, everybody. <laughs> but um, the free play Florida cartridge for the 2600 that Eugenio mentioned, it's a graphics hack of Midnight Magic. Uh, there's a, a video of it on uh, the Free Play Florida website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, it looks like, uh, at least from the video that was posted, it looks like there are Pac-Man graphics in the pinball board. So uh, that looks pretty cool. Um, let's see. I should point out that when um, that when TrekMD mentioned the heyday of the console, he put heyday in quotes, I guess to imply that the 7800 never really had a chance to have a heyday, if you will. And seriously, Crystal Quest probably would have made the 7800 a much more successful, a much more popular console if it had come out at the time. But as usual, TrekMD, I thank you for your, as usual, very thoughtful feedback on the game. Oh, and for this episode, I am excited to announce that we have an audio submission. This is only the second audio submission we've had since the launch of this podcast. The first one was by Super Podcast Brothers Andy Ryerson back in April. Uh, this time, however, it's also from Andy Ryerson of Super Podcast Brothers. Let's hear what he has to say. Well, hello there, Sean. I'm going to try this again because the audio submission I sent earlier, uh, I don't quite feel the same 
about the game as I did only three or four days ago as I do now. And that's because I, I watched you stream the first couple stages of Crystal Quest, and I, I rather enjoyed it, to be honest. Um, at least your first stream of it where you got frustrated and rage quit, because I had the same exact experience with that game, and my opinion sort of reflected that um, that experience in my first audio submission. Um, I won't recap that completely, but just to kind of set up what I'm going to say now, I felt that there were aspects of the game design that really left a lot to be desired and that I didn't like the the energy system where you ran out of time after so long, particularly with the bosses, because with 32 hit points to defeat Bertilda, I often find my, found myself running out of time with, with the approach I was taking with the boss before, but... After I watched that stream and kind of conversed with you over the internet about about the game and my feelings towards it, you'd mentioned that you had actually found a way to pass stage two, and and that inspired me to to give the game another visit. And about I don't know five six hours later on Saturday night, after I started it, I had a completely different feeling on Crystal Quest. And that's primarily based on the fact that I actually kind of figured out how to to do the bosses. In my previous audio submission, like I said, I I, I said I, I really couldn't get past stage two because I had always run out of time before I could defeat the boss or I'd get hit by the boss, and it just it it frustrated me so much as it did to you on that uh, live stream you did that it just kind of made me walk away from the game. I still did like the game overall, but it left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth, but. I did discover a way to beat the bosses really easily, and that's if you take about a couple steps forward from the left-hand side of the screen and just jump and fire, you don't even need gem upgrades, and you can beat any of the bosses just fine. It's uh, That completely f- fixes the problem. Now, the boss fights are kind of lame now because of that, but it's better to have a lame boss than an excruciatingly impossibly difficult boss, which is how I felt about it before. So now the bosses are just kind of this little intermission thing between worlds and and that's fine and since i went back to the game i almost almost finished it in fact i got to world 5-5 and unfortunately when i got a game over after trying that stage for what felt like the 20th time this is a difficult stage on the main title screen instead of selecting continue i selected start i hit bumped the joystick and that started my game over and i was a little bit upset for about five minutes but then i realized I had so much fun along the way, it didn't even matter that I finished it. Now, if anything, it gives me a reason to go back to Crystal Quest and then play it through again. And, man, I'm so glad that you inspired me to go back to this game and really, really give it another chance. And since this was a game I had been looking forward to for so long and you know, finally got my hands on a copy of it earlier this year at the Atari Age store, and then to not really be all that satisfied with it even though I did appreciate what the game had done technically. I don't know, it just kind of bummed me out. But being able to go back to it and now fully enjoy it and discover the magnificence of Crystal Quest, I'm just so, so overjoyed. I mean, this is this is the game that the Atari 7800 needed all along. Up until this point, we've only had Scrapyard Dog for a platformer really on this system. And to have this come and in many ways parallel some of the best efforts on the NES is just oh my god i what can i say the the it it's so challenging 
but in a fun way. I never after after I discovered how to beat the bosses, I never got discouraged from losing a life. You know, because thankfully Bob programmed it into where if you die on a stage and get a game over, you can continue and it starts you at the beginning of that stage. So it doesn't really punish you all that much for failing. And it's it just if anything encourages you to try again and even on some more some of the more difficult stages, I just I kept plowing ahead because I was just having so much fun. And every time I died, I was like, "Oh, I, I see what I did wrong there." And next time, I know how to fix it. And that is quality game design right there. And after I actually got past Worlds Two, I had a, I had a pretty easy time. Easy, relatively. I mean, I I didn't by any means breeze my way through anything. But World Three is actually a lot simpler to me than World Two. There's not much. As much platforming, it's kind of that underground cavernous sort of setting, and I just had a blast with with that world, and all the way through level 5, and I hope to someday soon go through and actually finish world 5 and, and finish the game once and for all, but... To kind of summarize, I mean, you've probably said a lot of the same things that I I would say about this game, but uh, I mean, the music's great. I mean, this is one game that that really, really needs the pokey sound. While it's great for other games to have, it's not as necessary, but for a game of this scope, having that quality pokey sound, I mean, really was just the, the, the cherry on top of this lovely Crystal Quest cake, and man... Am I just ever so glad to to be kind of wrong about my first impressions on a game because I so enjoy just really binging this game over the weekend and I, I, I thank you for uh, g- giving me kind of the push and the, the inspiration and the encouragement to do so because it really allowed me to spend some quality time with my 7800 which is, which is never, never a bad thing so... My only complaint here is that I hope one day that this game can be more accessible to people, obviously with the pokey supply in the in the shape that it's in. I, it's not really uh, accessible to a lot of people, at least easily, but I hope someday that can be rectified somehow, because this game deserves to be played. It deserves to sit on the shelf of every person that has an Atari 7800. It's... The only word I have is masterpiece, and I, I know this this whole audio submission just sounds just so hyperbolic, but I I don't care. I I loved so much going back to this game, and and of course playing it with my Ed Ladd and joystick was just it was just pure gaming bliss. I, I maybe wouldn't have enjoyed it quite as much with uh, certainly not a pro line, but even with the Sega Genesis controller with the with the adapter, but. Man, if if you really want to experience this game in like the the best way possible, get yourself an Atlanta joystick and it's just it's just pure gaming bliss, like I said. Just everything's so responsive. The the game and the controller work so well together. It's a it's one of the best gaming experiences I've had in recent memory. And it wouldn't have happened were it not for your show. So thank you for for doing this episode and making this podcast and pushing people like me to go back and try these games. And of course, thanks to Bob DiCrescenzo and Atari Age for for giving me a way to to have a copy of this game and play it. So I'm going to shut up now, let you get back to your show, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go back to my Atari 7800. Wow, uh, that is a change of tune there, Andy. Thank you for submitting that. And I'm glad I was able to help change your mind. Uh, yeah, um, with Andy's permission, I would like to post his original submission 
and I'll put a link to that in the show notes if I do get permission from Andy, just so you can hear the difference from his original submission, which I got to say, his original submission wasn't as harsh as I expected it to be. Because he did warn me um, while uh, after I live streamed my first attempt, he did warn me that it was going to be pretty harsh. I was worried to be a little bit discouraging against Bob DiCrescenzo, but it wasn't at all. It wasn't. Uh, I, it was, I think, a very balanced critique, although there were some pretty harsh elements to it. But uh, what Andy's referring to, uh, those of you who didn't see, um, on the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast Facebook page, I did a Facebook Live while attempting to play Crystal Quest all the way through. And I was getting so frustrated with Berthilda, or is it Bertilda? I don't know, at the end of level two. I would get killed instantly every single time. And I got so mad. I rage quit, said a few choice words, and uh, deleted the video. And then what I did was I went and I watched Trevor's video. And this is, I think that was the video that I referred Andy to when he and I were chatting about uh, our frustrations with Crystal Quest. I just looked that up because I knew that there was a playthrough video. And uh, what Andy described, that's pretty much what Trevor did in his video. And that's what I did to get past Berthilda. And I made it up to level four, round six. And then I quit again. Not out of rage, but literally because I didn't have any more time to play. I had to go pick up my wife, and we were going to go out to dinner and things. So I I just didn't have enough time, and uh, we were going to do some other things when we got home. So I just had to shut off the Atari. But yeah, just knowing how you could possibly get past Berthilda, that makes all the difference in the world between being really angry and never wanting to play the game again and just marveling at this, and yeah, masterpiece. It has been That's a word that has been used to describe Crystal Quest many times, and it absolutely is. I'm not a platform fan. I'm really not. Um, I think the, the first platform game I really sat down and played was Sonic the Hedgehog on the Sega Genesis, and I really enjoyed it, and I actually did complete it several times. I think I completed Sonic 2, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, those were really the only two platform games I really got into. I tried Super Mario Brothers later, and it got uh, I got bored with it. I liked Cool Spot and Zool and Super Frog and the Amiga, but I never sat through and actually finished those. And part of it was just that it's like, okay, yeah, platformers are pretty much the same. If you have played Super Mario Brothers, you'll have a feel for what Crystal Quest is like, except I think Crystal Quest has a lot more going on for it. It has a lot more characters in it. It has a lot more personality to it. And um, what else can I say? Um, I agree with Andy. This is a great game. I love it personally, and I can't wait to get back to play it again and see if I can perhaps make it to the end. Will I ever make it without using a continue? (laughs) I I doubt it. But uh, I know that it is possible. It has been done. But uh, let's... Let's see what happens. Thanks again, Andy. And you can listen to Super Podcast Brothers through just about any podcast streamer, I guess. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, all those other things. And you can go to Super Podcast Brothers' website at superpodcastbros.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I do believe that Tim and Andy are going to go on a six-week hiatus pretty soon to take a holiday break. Kind of like how on Pie Factory Podcast, uh, Jim and I are going to be taking a uh, month off. Uh, as for this podcast, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm going to keep pushing along. 
and um, see how it goes. But anyway, that's it for feedback for this episode. And everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, sending in your thoughts. And so we come to the end of another edition of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Uh, Very, very fun time doing this episode. And uh, what do I have to say? Uh, I might be reiterating something that I said before, but when I first sat down uh, to play the game all the way through for prepping for this episode, I got so frustrated at the end of level two when I just could not figure out any possible way to beat Berthilda. And I rage quit, took the video down from Facebook because I said a few choice words that I probably shouldn't have given that uh, I watch my language when I record this show. <laughs> but after a while, I I looked at Trevor's video and saw how he did that. And so I tried again and I was able to get past Berthilda on level two. And I was having such a fun time playing the game. I absolutely love it. And I'm not a platform fan. And every time Bob DiCrescenzo has a new game out, I think and sometimes say the same thing, and that is, oh, for God's sakes, Bob, you outdid yourself. And yeah, this game was quite a masterpiece, quite a masterpiece. I highly recommend it. It is so worth the extra money. Please go to the Atari Age store and buy this sucker. Get it. You'll be happy you did. Anyway, I will get to uh, the next couple of games that are scheduled for this podcast in just a moment. Before I do, I have some bigger priorities that I have to take care of, specifically thanking some people Uh, in no particular order. I want to thank the following people who have sponsored this podcast monetarily via Patreon.com. Thank you to Gray Defender. Thank you to Richard Grounds and Ed Ladden Controllers and Richard Valdez and Kyle Etter and Jimmy G. And if you'd like to contribute to the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash homebrew78. And I realize most people who have Patreon sponsorship, they they usually do something uh, nice for those sponsors. And I really got to come up with something uh, for that. Um, and I'm, I'm open to ideas because uh, I really do appreciate it. You guys deserve something in return. And I hope I'm doing a quality podcast. I hope at least there's that, but I want to do more than that. So um, I'll try to think of something. So in the near future, there's something I could do to thank you all, like in a more active way than just saying thank you. In the meantime, if you wish to contact me, you can email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And fab4it is spelled F-A-B and then the actual number four and then I-T. You can find the show notes for this and all other episodes as well as the actual episodes at homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web. You can reach me on Twitter at homebrew78, and honestly, I have not been tweeting enough. I'm, I am i don't know. I'm just not good at Twitter, so I apologize. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, homebrew7800. And um, coming up next, um, I figured, well, it was during the development of Crystal Quest that uh, Bob DiCrescenzo was starting to think about Astro Blaster. Well, he did do Astro Blaster, so that will be the next episode, which, oh my goodness, I can't believe it's this time of year already. Uh, that will be the episode that comes out on December 2nd, 
And on December 16th, that episode is going to be Santa Simon, Santa Simon. And also that'll be the last episode before Christmas. And of course I'll talk about some general Christmas stuff that's been part of my life. Uh, I know Ferg does that on his uh, Atari 2600 game by game podcast. And uh, I really enjoy hearing that kind of thing. What am I doing? I keep stealing from Ferg. <laughs> I guess that just shows like how much of an enjoyable podcast that he puts out, I guess. So that's a, a testament to that. Uh, and um, the final show for the year will be December 30th. I haven't thought of a game yet for that. Um, spoiler alert, it is not going to be Pac-Man Collection, unfortunately. I'm still not ready to do that one. Still working on that one. That's going to take a long time. <laughs> And just to reiterate, that's the final show of the year, um, not the final episode period. Uh, we, I will still continue my two-week schedule well into 2018 and however long it takes to cover all the Atari 7800 homebrew titles. And uh, in the meantime, thank you all for listening. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoy your turkey, those of you who eat turkey on uh, this coming Thursday. I will be celebrating Thanksgiving in New Jersey. Uh, my wife is from New Jersey and her mother still lives in New Jersey. So we go out there every year for Thanksgiving and uh, we catch up with a few New Jersey friends and do some things around the Jersey shore that we usually do. And uh, I might take a little trip to Silverball Pinball Arcade on the Asbury Park Boardwalk. I've been there a couple of times. I really like it. Um, but um, if not, I'll do something else, I guess. But uh, anyway, I hope all of you have a great next couple of weeks and, well, hey, great future in general. Again, thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me. And please also support these hardworking homebrew developers. Give them the support they deserve. All the best, everybody. Yeah, there's a well-known Easter egg in Crystal Quest. I'm not sure if it's technically considered an Easter egg since we've known about it since pretty much the beginning of the development of the game. But I'm talking, of course, about the hidden level. I accidentally found the hidden level when I was uh, doing my second run through of Crystal Quest. And uh, it's in level three. And I believe it was in round three. I don't remember exactly what I did. I'm just going to share with you what I think I did. Now, if memory serves me right, the way you get to that hidden level, after the second green gem in round three, you'll find a zombie and there'll be a little platform above the zombie. If you go onto that platform and move to the right, you'll see that in this round, instead of those little stalagmites or stalactites, I don't know what you call those things, that are at the top of the screen, you'll see an actual ceiling. What you want to do is jump all the way up until you can't see Bentley anymore so that he's essentially running on top of that ceiling off screen and just keep going to the right and he'll eventually drop down so you can see Bentley. It's very similar to the warps in the other levels. Uh, I've only found the warp for level one. I was actually looking for the warp in level three, and that's how I found the hidden level. But you'll get a congratulatory message about finding the secret level. 
And the secret level is kind of challenging. Uh, just like with all the other levels, you can continue on it if you lose your life. Um, and yeah, it's not a bonus level. It's a actual level. If you lose a life, you lose a life. At the end of this hidden level, you don't actually battle the main Berthilda. You battle the mini Berthildas, which can be kind of a challenge. You might have to do it a couple of times before you get the hang of it. But at the end of that level, you are returned to level three, round four. So I think that's how you find it. Don't quote me on that. But uh, I didn't have a chance to go back and play through again to get to it. So anyway, hope you enjoy finding the hidden level. Smurfberry Crunch is fun to eat. A Smurfy fruity breakfast treat. Made by Smurfs so happily, it tastes like crunchy Smurfberries. Berry shake and crispy, chewy, very, very.